Hey, this is Brent Jensen, and you're listening to No Sleep Till Sudbury, the show where we talk about the music that makes your skin vibrate. Last week, we talked about Woodstock, the Peace and Love Festival. This week, quite the opposite. We're going to look at Altamont, which was for many the end of the innocence. The Altamont Free Festival was a countercultural rock concert held on Saturday, December 6, 1969 at the Altamont Speedway in Northern California. 300,000 people attended the concert, anticipating that it was going to be another Woodstock for the West Coast this time, Woodstock having taken place about four months earlier in New York. Altamont was billed as a free concert put on by the Rolling Stones, along with some special guests. Jefferson Airplane, Santana, the Flying Burrito Brothers, and Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. The Grateful Dead were also on the bill, scheduled before the Stones, but because of the increasing violence they were witnessing, they decided to bow out in what Rolling Stone magazine would later refer to as rock and roll's worst day. The Stones held this concert in response to criticism that ticket prices for their 1969 tour were too high. So, they decided to finish the tour with a free show, along with the Grateful Dead. Originally, the show was to take place at San Jose State University, which had previously been the site of free concerts hosting more than 80,000 attendees. However, the city of San Jose informed the production company that the Stones had hired to look after the booking, that it didn't want to host another large concert, and the grounds wouldn't be available. Golden Gate Park in San Francisco and the Sears Point Raceway were approached next, but scheduling conflicts and disputes over film rights kibosh those plans. A businessman named Dick Carter then stepped forward and offered to host the concert at his Altamont Raceway on Saturday, December 6. Now, this location change happened on the night of Thursday, December 4, just 48 hours before the show. This last-minute move resulted in a lot of logistical problems, things like medical tent shortages and delays in securing portable toilets, for example. Stage design also is an issue. The Sears Point location positioned the stage up at the highest point of the property, but at Altamont, the stage would be positioned at the bottom of a slope. Because of this situation, a call for added security had to be put out, and that call was answered by a guy named Ralph Barger, head of the Oakland chapter of the Hells Angels Motorcycle Club, and its members were asked to surround the stage during the concert. To this day, there are varying accounts as to who the actual party was that secured the services for the Hells Angels as security for Altamont. Some people say the Angels were hired by the Rolling Stones management, based on recommendations from the Grateful Dead and Jefferson Airplane, as they had both used the Angels for security previously at their performance for $500 worth of beer and had zero issues. Other people who were directly involved say this isn't necessarily true. Rolling Stone's road manager at the time, a guy named Sam Cutler, said on record that the only agreement in place was that the Hells Angels would make sure the band's gear was protected. And that was it. There was no talk of them providing a police-type security force or anything like that. Cutler also said that the deal was arrived at during a meeting between himself, the Grateful Dead's manager, and a member of the Hells Angels San Francisco chapter. It was agreed during this meeting that payment would be the $500 worth of beer 
which was a cost that was supposed to be shared by all the bands. Cutler later said that he alone paid it, and he was never reimbursed. So, the deal in principle seemed mostly clear. The Hells Angels had been hired and paid with $500 worth of beer to essentially escort the Rolling Stones to the stage and keep people off the stage. That was the deal. But there were a lot of different takes on what was and what should have been expected between band management and members of Hells Angels. One Hells Angel later outlined a discussion he had with Cutler after Cutler asked him to provide security. He advised that the Angels weren't a police force and that he stipulated that any enforcement would be loose. The Hells Angels would be expected to do little more than sit on the side of the stage, drinking the beer they were paid with, maybe helping out with giving directions to people, and, quote, making sure rapes and murders were not occurring. Santana were the first band to hit the stage, and their set went pretty smoothly. But as the day wore on, there was a dark cloud forming over Altamont. There was a quiet agitation forming between the crowd and the Hells Angels. The Hells Angels had been drinking their payment all day in front of the stage, getting very wasted, and the crowd became unpredictable. They started to attack each other, the Hells Angels, and even the performers. The Flying Burrito Brothers, a country rock group, mellowed the crowd out a little bit during their set, but when they left the stage, the mood of the crowd was once again dark. The singer of the local rock band Ace of Cups, Denise Jukes, who was six months pregnant at the time, suffered a fractured skull when she was hit in the head by an empty beer bottle thrown from the crowd. By the time nightfall came, the Altamont vibe had taken on a very grim turn. A lot of fights were breaking out in the crowd, and the angels were getting involved in those fights, using motorcycle chains and broken pool cues to keep the crowd off the stage. One of the Hells Angels' motorcycles fell over at one point as a result of the crowd surge, and that seemed to push them over the top. After that, it just turned into a free-for-all. A member of Jefferson Airplane jumped into the crowd to try to break up a fight, and he was knocked unconscious by a punch in the head from an angel during the band's set. When Jefferson Airplane guitar player Paul Kantner sarcastically thanked the angels for knocking the singer out, one of the angels commandeered a band microphone and started to argue with him about it. And right around that time, the Grateful Dead, who had been scheduled to play between Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, and The Stones, declined their set and left the festival grounds claiming the security issue had gotten way out of hand. And not long before that, Stephen Stills was apparently stabbed in the leg repeatedly with a bicycle spoke during the CSNY set by a Hells Angel who was allegedly very stoned. The Rolling Stones waited for a little while to go on. They claimed the delay was because Stones bassist Bill Wyman missed the helicopter ride to the festival grounds. When they did eventually start their performance, a group of between four and 5,000 people were jammed right up against the stage, some of them trying to climb onto it. Mick Jagger, who had already been punched in the head by a concertgoer within seconds of getting out of his helicopter, was visibly shaken by the chaos that surrounded him and the band, and he tried to calm everybody down in the front by repeatedly asking them to relax. But by the third song, Sympathy for the Devil, a fight broke out right in front of the stage, forcing the Stones to stop playing while the Hells Angels tried to break it up, 
which took some time. The set continued for a while without incident until the band started playing Under My Thumb, during which time a number of Hell's Angels began to scuffle with 18-year-old Meredith Hunter after he and some other fans tried to jump up on stage. One of the Hell's Angels grabbed Hunter by the head, punched him, and threw him back in the crowd. Hunter returned to the stage despite his girlfriend's pleas for him to calm down and move further back into the crowd, away from the stage with her. Apparently, Hunter was enraged, and he was very intoxicated. The Grateful Dead's manager, Rock Scully, watched this incident unfold from the top of a truck and said that Hunter looked crazy, as though he was out of his mind on drugs, and he appeared to be focused on harming someone on the stage. Now, Hunter, and you can see him in the Gimme Shelter footage if you've ever seen the documentary, he was dressed in bright green clothing. He returns to the front of the stage and draws a gun from inside his jacket. Hell's Angel Alan Pissarro saw him pull the gun and he drew a knife from his belt and charged at Hunter from the side. He grabbed at the gun with his left hand and Pissarro stabbed Hunter twice with his right hand, which resulted in Hunter's death. That footage from Gimme Shelter was shot by a photographer named Eric Saarinen, who was on stage taking pictures of the crowd. Saarinen was unaware of the fact that he caught the murder on film until more than a week later when his raw footage was screened in New York. In the film sequence, you can see that the crowd opens up with Hunter's girlfriend at the center of the opening. Hunter comes into the opening from the left with his hand up towards the stage and you can see the shape of the gun against his girlfriend's dress. Then, you see Pissarro coming in from the right and stabbing Hunter twice before pushing him out of the shot, and the crowd opening closes. Now, all this happens within about two seconds. Pissarro was reported to have stabbed Hunter five times, but you can only see two of those in the footage. There were also claims that Hunter was stomped on by numerous Hell's Angels while he was on the ground. It was confirmed by Hunter's autopsy that he was high on methamphetamine when he died. Pissarro was arrested and tried for murder in 1971, but he was acquitted after a jury viewed the footage from the concert showing Hunter pulling the gun, concluding that Pissarro acted in self-defense. For their part, the Rolling Stones could see the scuffle, but weren't initially aware that someone had been stabbed and killed. They did become aware that something was gravely wrong moments after it happened, and the band stopped playing mid-song, with Jagger calling out for a doctor from his mic. After a few minutes, the band resumed the song and eventually completed their set. Later, Jagger would say that in discussing the situation among themselves on stage at the time, the band all agreed that if they had walked off at that point, the crowd would have likely become even more chaotic, and a riot would have likely ensued. Altamont came to be known as the stark and definitive end of the hippie era in 1960s American youth culture. Of course, this is in contrast with what Woodstock was thought to be representative of, which was a peace and love movement. In this context, it was almost as though Altamont came to define the death of this movement. Rolling Stone magazine was especially critical in its reaction to Altamont. It dedicated 14 pages to the event, and it claimed that Altamont was founded on egoism, greed, 
ineptitude, and a fundamental lack of concern for humanity. The writers even lashed out at Mick Jagger himself, saying what an enormous thrill it would have been for an angel to kick Mick Jagger's teeth down his throat. That's a direct quote. The documentary film I mentioned earlier, Gimme Shelter, was criticized by a number of reviewers for casting the Stones in a sympathetic light and for holding a concert simply so that it could be filmed, despite all the red flags that had emerged during the concert's planning stages. Keith Richards downplayed the situation in typical Keith Richards fashion, saying that it was, quote, basically well handled, but lots of people were tired and a few tempers got frayed, but on the whole, it was a good concert. The Grateful Dead would go on to write songs about it, like New Speedway Boogie, featuring the line, One way or another, this darkness got to give. Altamont is also referenced by Don McLean in the fifth verse of the song American Pie, with words meant to be symbolic of the evening. Jack Flash, Candlestick, which was a reference to San Francisco, though Candlestick Park had nothing to do with the actual concert. Also, The Devil, An Angry Spectator Watching an Event on a Stage, and An Angel Born in Hell. It wasn't until he sold the lyrics notes in 2015 that McLean officially confirmed the song's ties to Altamont. But if you listen, it's pretty clear. In the lyrics, Altamont represented the lowest point of a 10-year period that started with the deaths of Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, and the Big Bopper in a 1959 plane crash, during which, according to McLean, quote, things were heading in the wrong direction, and life was becoming less idyllic. Folks, here's an interesting fact with which to conclude our examination of Altamont. In 2008, a former FBI agent made it public knowledge that a number of Hells Angels members had hatched a plot to murder Mick Jagger because they believed he didn't support the group adequately following the event, and because of his negative portrayal of the Hells Angels in the Gimme Shelter documentary. Apparently, the plan to murder Jagger was very detailed, and in fact was almost successfully carried out. Members of the motorcycle club reportedly used a boat to approach a residence on Long Island in New York where Jagger was staying. They were prepared to go ahead with the murder when a storm rolled in and nearly sank the boat, foiling their plans. All right, that wraps up our three-part look at 1969 and the multitude of musical events that shaped that year. I hope you enjoyed it, folks. Connect with me on Facebook and Instagram at Brent Jensen Music, Twitter at Real B. Jensen, or you can visit my website, brentjensenmusic.com. This has been No Sleep Till Sudbury, and I'm Brent Jensen. Until next time, folks, take good care. Brent Jensen is the best-selling author of No Sleep Till Sudbury, Leftover People, and All My Favorite People Are Broken. All titles available in stores and on Amazon worldwide.